0: There's this really interesting relationship about how we understand race and how the federal government really presents us race on the census categories, which really constructs our definitions of race.
1: A lot of the Somali refugees did not want to check African-American because they did not identify as African-American in any way with the culture or the fact that they were refugees.
2: One of the things that I've always felt was important and I continue to believe is important with the census is that everyone is counted, especially when you get into areas where there's maybe some suspicion as to why people might not want to be counted. They, they might feel marginalized for one reason or another, or they feel trepidatious about giving their information, even if it's anonymized.
3: There has always been an undercount of certain populations. And, you know, today the narrative is always, oh, we have a hard to count population. Well, the reason populations are hard to count is because of the way the Census Bureau does the enumeration. It's designed to count leave it to beavers.
4: From Bridger Media, it's 2020 Counts,
0: the limited series on Census 2020. With your hosts, Layla Jerusalem and Allison Bajracharya.
5: Hi, Layla. Hi.
4: So we're not in person today because of this pandemic we're all navigating.
5: Where Where am I talking to you <laughs> from right now? I'm in our pantry, <laughs> trying trying to avoid all noise from children. That's why I see blueberry snack bars <laughs> behind you.
4: <laughs> exactly, and and some ramen. I don't think Zoom's come up with that backdrop yet. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Here we are. The census is now at people's doorstep and nobody's opening their doors.
5: Alison, you don't know how many people, after I posted about our podcast on the census, how many people have texted me pictures of their census (laughs) envelopes, which I think we should actually figure out how to put into a gallery on our website. I like that. And so, yeah. I think that before we embarked on this journey, we had no idea how important this was. And certainly the issues we bring up in this episode were things that had never crossed our minds. Yes. Yeah, What's so your take?
4: The imperfect census. This episode and the interviews we did for this episode are really fascinating to me because they highlight the history of race and racism that's implicit in our census. And I suppose in some ways I'm not surprised because the more I learn about our history, the more I see how racism has been implicit in it for so long. In so many ways, the census felt like something that was innocuous um, and only had you know, positive aspects to it. But in this episode, we really learned that's
5: not the case. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know, some of the ideas that Dr. Natalie Masoka presented were very new to us. So, this idea that is tied directly in the construct of identification by race today is tied directly to the census, the very first census.
4: Far from just in terms of how they were describing people and the fact that there were these distinctions that led to the three-fifths compromise, are so crazy.
5: I just question how the very identification of people or the lack of identification of people, as we'll see people discuss in this episode, has led to both the feelings of marginalization and also the act of marginalization. For sure.
4: For sure. Really up until 50 years ago, that's true. You know, without putting the cart before the horse, because I want everyone to listen to this episode... I hope that two takeaways are that everyone realizes that, regardless of race, ethnicity, immigration status, everyone who lives in this country should complete the census. And we still have so much more work to do to make sure that everyone, regardless of race and ethnicity and gender, are adequately represented in the census moving forward.
0: There's this really interesting relationship about how we understand race and how the federal government really presents us race on the census categories, which really constructs our definitions of race. That's Natalie Masuoka, a professor at UCLA. I'm an associate professor in political science and Asian American studies, thinking about how Asian American, African American, and Latino voters participate in politics get their interests known. The census is really a foundational piece of data for us to work with to understand really where communities of color are. Race has really been something that's been defined primarily by the government and defined by the census enumerator. And so the federal government up until 1960 had directions for the enumerators to say, this is how someone would be classified in terms of their race.
1: That was an interesting dynamic, too, between, like, the Somali immigrants and the African-Americans because they are very different cultures and very different identities. Yet there was only one question on the census about
3: what race. race is. So
1: that raised a lot of questions. That's Jenna Weeks. She was based in Minneapolis. I was hired to be the supervisor over the questionnaire assistance centers. And I think we had about 80 centers set up over Minneapolis a lot of the Somali refugees did not want to check African American because they did not identify as African American in any way, with the culture or the fact that they were refugees.
5: Do you know what they would have preferred to be identified as? So Somali, Somali? American, <laughs> yeah. Somali. And then or I just should Somali. say that
1: there was a place where you can write in your preferred ethnicity. So. You could always do that, and we just encourage people to do that. And also, you can just skip the question, too, if you don't want to. But then, if it's not on one of those checked boxes, it's it's less likely that you're going to get, like, a big group of people identifying that way.
5: I, Layla, am half Filipino and half Iranian. As many mixed-race people can relate to, I've never quite felt like either, fully. So I've taken great solace in checking off more than one box when it
0: comes to forms. So the two or more races option really is a very important option. You know, if you can express, if you hold identities with being white, black, Asian, an indigenous uh, group, or Latino, it really is important for you to check those boxes. And the idea is, is the two or more races option is allowing you to express that perhaps you don't think of yourself as one particular box, but in fact you identify with multiple categories, that is allowing some identity expression. But the idea that you are still checking non-white protected categories is still a really important practice.
4: By protected categories, Natalie is referring to U.S. federal law, which protects individuals from discrimination or
0: harassment based on identity. The box that is somewhat problematic is the some other race box. So there is an option when you answer your race that you can say, I'm some other race. And then there's a blank line for you to say what you are. And that box is more problematic because it's not always quite clear how the Census Bureau then uses that data. So effectively, while you might feel that that's identity expression, when it comes to truly using that information that you're giving to the census, it's always for us not quite clear exactly what we can do with the some other race category. Because effectively, you're counted as some other race. While you are actually writing in something, that qualitative write-in information isn't necessarily something that's always provided for a broader population. So I'm curious, on a personal level, how do you identify and has that changed over time? That's a great question. I do identify as Asian American. I think I really do embrace the message that there really is a particular Experience of being racialized as Asian in the United States. My family is also part of one of the first waves of Japanese immigrants into the United States. So we are a very long standing family. My mother's family came in in like 1899. It was the turn of the 20th century. So we are really a longstanding Asian-American, commu- you know, part of the Asian-American wow. community in the United States. And so I for me, this is really, I think, an important expression to the public to really assert, you know, that even though we really think about Asians as foreign-born, right, kind of perpetually this kind of immigrant group, that really we have long-standing American communities that are from, from Asia.
4: I think one of the ahas for me, as I've learned more about the census, is the implicit racism and the way it's played out for so many decades of our history. Japanese Americans are certainly victims of that, very explicitly, when during World War II, census data was used to send them to internment camps. Can we talk a little bit about that and how
0: you've seen that change over time? The census really, unfortunately, has a history of being the institution that has really helped to delineate different levels of citizenship depending on your race over time. You know, the idea that we had to collect racial data was rooted in the three-fifths compromise at the founding, right? The idea that on the one hand, whites were going to count as a full person And slaves or blacks were going to count as three-fifths of a person really then created this idea that we had to collect by race because you had to know, right, if there were white people and if there were slaves or white free persons, slaves, and also then if you were Indian— and not part of a tribe. And so the foundation of collecting race data is because we have attached, unfortunately, different statuses and unequal statuses to people who were classified as white, Native American or Indian at that time, and fewer black. And so what's really interesting, of course, is that even when we we no longer have slavery, we no longer have the Three-Fifths Compromise, The interesting question is then, like, why do we still collect race then, right? Especially if it has such this kind of, you know, racist history to it.
4: Since 1965, largely driven by the civil rights movement, race data has been used to monitor racial discrimination, a shift that helps ensure equality.
0: And so now, in today's time, for students, we really think about it as this really kind of empowering source and this source of equality. But, you know, as a historian of the census, I think it's really important for our students to realize that there's really a deep racist history in why we collect data. And for us to be really be cognizant of realizing then that there could be a reappropriation of that political agenda, that racist political agenda. And so when we're talking about changing collection, trying to get rid of, you know, a black category in favor of maybe specific ethnic categories, we really want to be mindful because there's historical precedent to use it to create inequities in society.
5: One thing I find so interesting is that, you know, this question on the census was born out of inequality and oppression, and it has evolved into a piece that is used essentially to monitor and empower if we did not have, let's just talk about racial inequality right now. If racial inequality did not exist in our society, would we have a need for racial categories at all?
0: I think abstractly, probably not. The construction of race in and of itself, right, was to justify and implement inequality. The construction of slavery and the assignment of being black with being not a full citizen was, you know, in many ways you can think about race and inequality kind of in and of its same. So I think if there wasn't that history to it, then we probably wouldn't be seeing the need for any kind of racial categories. And in fact, you know, it's it's always plausible, and this is always kind of the thought process if you, you kind know, of talk to someone who really thinks, you know, kind of about abstractly the kind of idea of inequality. Inequality could really map onto any arbitrary category. You know, you could think about mapping on to people who wear certain colors or something like that. So this is really kind of the ways in which why race is so powerful, because it is so arbitrary. But it's the type of construction that we've created to implement different sources of inequality across different groups, right, across society. So probably if we didn't have race, we would have something else. Like height. (laughs) Yeah, or something. But I think it's really important yet to really kind of understand that uh, it's really We didn't really have one without the other. Up next,
4: we're talking about the issues of pulling off such a giant undertaking.
3: I know several things. One is the operation the Bureau now is implementing isn't really the operation it had intended to do.
5: For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. 2020 Counts is brought to you by Medinatura. If you've ever taken medication for pain, you know that there can be a range of side effects. Medinatura gives millions relief without the side effects of conventional medicines. When I got seriously injured a few years ago, one over-the-counter muscle pain product gave me instant relief. Tea Relief, made from arnica, plant-based pain relievers in a cream of organic oils and organic shea butter, contains no dyes or perfumes. Medinatura products like Tea Relief, Well Mind, Clear Life, and Reboost can be purchased on Amazon, at Whole Foods, or Sprouts. Use code 2020COUNTS to receive 20% off your order on Medanatura.com. Hi, listeners. Before we get back to the rest of our show, we'd like to remind you to catch all episodes of our four-part series and share them. Completing the census is important. Knowing why we should complete the census is more critical than ever.
2: I had been in an advanced German class in high school and there was a population center near us in New Jersey that spoke German and they were concerned that the forms wouldn't come back correctly.
4: That's Joe Kempy. He was an enumerator in 2010.
2: I went and talked to someone, they accepted me into the program, signed me up, went through the training and off I went into West Milford, New Jersey, to interview people who may or may not want to answer the census in English or German. You get to do the oath of protecting the, the nation against all threats, foreign and domestic. And then you get a clipboard and a region, a couple addresses that you have to go and track down. One of the things that I've always felt was important, and I continue to believe is important with the census, is that everyone is counted And I think, you know, especially when you get into areas where there's maybe some suspicion as to why people might not want to be counted. They they might feel marginalized for one reason or another, or they feel trepidatious about giving their information, even if it's anonymized. And I think there was a a lot of the individuals that I was meeting with came from an era where the Germans were not necessarily well-liked for good reasons on some of it.
4: The Germans weren't the only ones who were suspicious of the census.
1: The census data has been used against people in history, but I have faith in my government. I understand that I don't have the same experiences that other people do either, but I can in good confidence tell you that the census is not going to use your information against you. It's against the law.
4: That's Jenna Weeks again.
1: You can't argue with people's experience. So if somebody has said you know, that their experience has been negative, the government, then I don't know how to change that. Oftentimes it's the same people who are concerned about trusting their government might benefit the most or have the most to lose from being undercounted.
4: As we heard in our first episode, public services, public infrastructure, business development, and now, data modeling for how COVID-19 will spread, rely on census data. An undercount can affect communities severely and for decades.
3: There has always been an undercount of certain populations. And, you know, today the narrative is always, oh, we have a hard-to-count population.
4: That's Arturo Vargas, the CEO of Naleo, a national organization working to increase Latino participation in the political process.
3: The reason populations are hard to count is because of the way the Census Bureau does the enumeration. It's designed to count leave-it-to-beavers. Mm. If you own a home, you have a stable residence and a mailing address then the census is designed to count you but if you have a complex household if you have housing instability if you're low income if you're a person of color if you're a child if you're an immigrant
4: so how do we change that um how do we ensure that these voices that have been historically underrepresented or you know direct targets of complete racism how do we change that and make sure people are included and counted
3: Well, fundamentally, it's the Census Bureau's job to count people. So the Census Bureau needs to modernize their techniques in order to count a more dynamic, more diverse, less civically engaged population that we have in the United States. And unfortunately, the the Bureau hasn't quite figured out how to do that. They still are largely using the postal system as a primary vehicle for counting people. They have spent the past decade updating a master address file of every single mailing address in the United States. That's the list they use to mail letters telling people, please go online this year and fill out your census form. So if your address didn't make it on the list, you're not going to get any mail from the Census Bureau and you probably won't be counted. And it's 95% of the U.S. population that will be counted in that manner.
4: Up until 2010, the Census Bureau hired an army of enumerators to walk every street in the United States. They confirmed every mailing address and did their best to identify hidden dwellings.
3: My concern is, did they actually capture that housing apartment building? that was built with four units, but over the course of the decade had been subdivided into eight. Two areas where the administration, I think, has stepped in to prevent the Bureau from doing what they wanted to do. One is in modernizing how the Census Bureau asks each of us to identify ourselves by our our ethnicity and our race. The way the Bureau does it is fundamentally flawed. There are two questions that the Bureau has on the census form that pertain to this issue. The first question that is asked of everybody is, is this person of Latino Hispanic origin no or yes? If it's no, you go to the next question. If it's yes, you have four options. Yes, Mexican-American, yes, Puerto Rican, yes, Cuban, or yes, other Latino. And that's where you write in if you're Dominican or Salvadoran or Guatemalteco or Argentinian, or some other group. And then you go to the next question that asks, what is this person's race? For most Latinos, when they get to that question, they're like, what are you talking about? I just told you what my race is, I'm Mexican. And the Bureau will say, no. The OMB standards say that Latino is an ethnicity. Now you have to give me your racial classification.
4: The OMB, which stands for the Office of Management and Budget, Assist the president in preparing and administering the federal budget. It is the defining authority for racial classification in the United States.
3: Half of Latinos end up marking this catch-all category called some other race, which OMB itself says is non-existent. And in some instances, the Bureau actually goes back and assigns a racial category.
4: That's crazy. That is
3: absolutely crazy. And the Bureau knows it. And the Bureau wants to get out of the business of guessing racial backgrounds for people who don't identify with a racial background, because we need racial data. That's one of the pieces of information in the census for enforcement of civil rights laws, for redistricting, voting rights, redistricting uh, employment discrimination, all those kinds of things. So the Bureau had spent the past 10 years in its most comprehensive, massive research initiative to figure out how to better ask the American public to identify themselves, racially and ethnically. And after years of focus groups of tests after tests after tests, and of interagency federal working group that worked with the Census Bureau, all agencies that themselves collect statistics, they came up with a recommendation that instead of two questions, let's do a combined question. The question basically is, would have been, please check all boxes that apply to this person, white, Latino, African American, Native Alaskan, or Native Hawaiian. There was a number of Asian countries listed. There would have been a new category called MENA, Middle Eastern North African. Because the people from that part of the world right now, OMB says they're white, even though they're from Egypt or Morocco or Saudi Arabia. Obviously, the stakeholders from those communities say we're not white. Our people do not find themselves on the census form. So the Bureau had agreed to add a new category. Well, that recommendation went to OMB, and OMB has just sat on it. Because OMB needed to then update the standards by which race and ethnicity is defined in the country, and it has refused to do so. And the first time we realized that OMB was not going to act on the recommendation for a combined question was in January of 2018. That's how we found out that OMB had no intention of allowing the research to prevail.
4: In other words, the 2020 census was an opportunity to ensure people of a variety of races and backgrounds were more accurately represented through more nuanced questions on race. Yet, the Trump administration interfered, delaying that opportunity for another decade.
3: The operation the Bureau now is implementing isn't really the operation it had intended to do in large measure because Congress underfunded the Census Bureau's preparations and planning to the point that it had to slow down, cancel, or just completely change some of its plans that it wanted to do for 2020.
4: Fortunately, some of the gaps created by the federal government are filled by nonprofit organizations and local agencies.
3: The Census Bureau has its own list of partners Mm -hmm. that people who signed up to say, yes, I'm going to work with the Bureau, I'm going to promote the census. But then there's another list of organizations that actually have received grants to work on the census and either uh, to educate their constituencies. So now we have people who are actually thinking about this issue, some of them for the first time. You know, there's children's groups who are now thinking about how are they going to mobilize their constituencies to make sure all children get counted. Mm -hmm. There are LGBT organizations that don't work on the census year in and year out, but this time around are promoting a full count of all LGBTQ populations around the country. Same thing with groups in the different ethnic communities, African-American, Latino, Asian, Arab, uh, which is another population that is at great risk of being undercounted in 2020 for obvious reasons. I am not gonna lie to anybody. It would be unreasonable for me to expect somebody not to be skeptical or suspicious or fearful of filling out a government form, particularly a form being administered by this administration, and that everything is going to be just fine. And I have to accept that people will be skeptical, will be fearful, and we have to deal with that. But we have to explain to them that the damage we would do to our communities of not participating is so much greater than whatever risk we may take by being counted. And that's a message we need to communicate, that there is in fact more benefit for our children, for our communities, of all of us being counted, than if we allow an undercount to happen.
4: So, we have a challenge in front of us. Our country has a checkered history of undercounting non-white communities. Yet, equally counting everyone is a fundamental right today, and an opportunity to ensure every living being in the U.S., age one day and older, is accounted for and is represented. What can we do to ensure underrepresented communities don't remain in the shadows? Join us next episode to learn about some of the more innovative strategies cities, nonprofits, and high profile individuals are using to ensure everyone counts.
3: And I said just bring a bunch of
4: wigs, I'll play a bunch of characters. And I said we could base it off of my joke. I had a joke where I would say that
3: Iranians don't answer the census and because you know, again, we don't wanna, you know, be known.
1: We are recruiting Census Goodwill ambassadors and training them to be our spokespersons and trusted messengers in our hardest to reach communities, hardest to count communities.
0: We selected 25 strategically working with the AME church to
5: um, do a pilot program with installing the internet. And you know, we're not only doing places of worship, we're doing businesses, we're doing organizations, we're doing um, daycares, head starts. So we really want to be creative and innovative about what we're doing.
4: That's next time on 2020 Counts.
5: Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the deadline to complete your census form has been extended to October 31st. Go to 2020census.gov. That's 2020census.gov to complete your form. 2020 Counts is a Bridger Media production. To learn more about our other shows and stay in touch, visit us at bridgermedia.com. That's B-R-I-D-G-R-Media.com. Sign up on our website and follow us on social media. 2020 Counts is developed and executive produced by Alison Bajracharya and Leila Jerusalem. The series is produced and mixed by Samantha Getsick, media provided by the U.S. Census Bureau. We'd like to thank the following. Stephen Winston for his branding expertise, Clayton Rosa for designing our website, Eli Green for website photography, Katie Payne for designing our cover art, Becky Carter for graphic design, PJ Shahamat for production help, John Raymond Fisher for lending his voiceover talent, and our families who spent hours wondering if they'd ever see us emerge from our recording caves.